Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President, CEO, and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us today, and Happy New Year to you and your families, loved ones, and your entire team at your businesses or companies. So today, as usual, I'm going to play the role of a moderator on the panel or topic of tr how President-elect Trump could impact you and your business. To join me today on my panel, I have two of the brilliant, knowledgeable Murthy Law Firm attorneys. Uh, today we have Kevin Andrews and Joel Yanovich. And we're going to do uh, sort of have a discussion and really try to parse out what we believe will be uh, sort of the issues that may come up. As most of you know, um, Donald Trump uh, really took. I guess many of political the political analysts and the pundits by surprise by winning the elections, um, and so immigration is obviously expected to play a major role in his presidency uh, from the time he comes into office on January twentieth. But as we know, the entire issue is so fraught with people on both sides getting upset with pre um, President-elect Trump having said, well, I'm going to be building a wall between U.S. and Mexico, which Mexico is going to pay for, which the Mexican president said, no way, Jose. And then to prioritize uh, and his focus on how we can make America great again is, of course, to take care of U.S. workers and protect their wages and make sure that nobody from another country is going to come take away their jobs, especially if they're going to have to train them. And he keeps giving the example of Disney workers. Um, and while Donald Trump is assembling his team of industry leaders and military generals to run the country, I think they're all trying to make sure that they get onto his agenda and appreciate where he's coming from and sort of follow through on that vision and mission. We know, for example, and we'll hopefully talk about a little bit later, about a key person who would impact all of us, USCIS, ICE, et cetera, which is the head of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, John F. Kelly, retired General John F. Kelly, and we'll talk a little bit about his background. That may just help some of you to understand where we may go with all of this. The reason we're talking about this subject, even though we can assure you that at the end of this conversation today or discussion, you may not know for sure with 100% certainty what exactly will or will not happen because none of us has a crystal ball and nobody knows what can happen. However, based on his comments, his, our understanding of the situation, of which what his leanings may be, we're going to just bring up those issues and kind of make a studied, educated guess on where we think immigration will go. And this is in response to many, many emails and phone calls and questions from many of you saying, can you tell me how this is going to impact me, my life, my business, my employees, my family, et cetera, et cetera. So with that, I'm going to maybe ask Kevin. Kevin, 
Um, how? What are sort of the specific restrictions, if you will, uh, where even if though President Donald Trump, when he does become the president on the 20th of this month, uh, sort of uh, where are his hands tied and what does, you know, where does Congress pl- play a role in all of this? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sheila. Uh, yeah, I think it's important to remember that Anytime a new president comes into office, the president, the incoming president-elect is going to have an agenda, but many of those agenda items are, are going to be limited by the balance of power. So the most fundamental key components of our day-to-day work, the U.S. immigration law, is based on statute. And statutes uh, require their laws that need to be passed by Congress, signed into law by the president. And most of the programs that we deal with, that our employer listeners deal with day-to-day, involve the H-1B program, for example, um, employment-based options for immigrant workers, the green card process. So these are statutory processes that can only be changed in, with, with a change in law. In the past, during, you know, most recently during the Obama administration, I guess in 2010 and maybe another uh, time, I believe in 12, we came, it seemed that we came very close to a comprehensive immigration reform bill coming out of Congress uh, that would probably have been signed by the president. And what we saw with that are some bipartisan um, approaches, particularly emphasizing business immigration in the H-1B program. So what we could see with the new incoming administration and a Republican-led Congress are pro-business immigration reforms where there are a, a, a bipartisan agreement between Republicans and Democrats, but it's also possible that the political will of, of the new administration can go in a different direction, just as the Obama administration's political will was geared more towards dealing with the recession in the beginning and Obamacare after that. The Trump administration's agenda may be focused on other things besides immigration and maybe more pro-business things, um, un- unless he can be convinced, I think, by the the industry titans and the, and the generals that he's surrounding himself with, that this is a policy agenda worth spending some political capital on to getting getting a bill through through Congress. And at this point, I think this is the the, the haziest of all the, the things that we'll be discussing today because it requires, as I mentioned, the coordination not just of um, a flip-flopping president-elect, but also that of, of members of Congress. And at this point, it's just there's so much on the table, it's difficult to see how it's going to play out with respect to business immigration or just immigration generally. And I think whether it's Democrats or Republicans, for years now, for several, several years now, the feeling is, Yep, we want some kind of comprehensive immigration reform. Yeah, 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 that makes perfect sense. But nobody's able to agree. The What do they say? The devil is in the details. Nobody's able to agree with what are the issues that some people think, yep, kick out everybody, make it tougher. The other side says make it easier, open up more numbers. And so everybody says, yep, we want comprehensive immigration reform. But what is it that we want in that? Nobody's able to agree. So well, that's I, the whole issue. Sorry. Oh, just something you reminded me of, Sheila. Uh, it's something about that that bipartisan approach to comprehensive immigration reform, at least maybe on the Republican side, was, yeah, all those things sound great when you're talking about helping businesses and the H-1B workers and all that. But first and foremost, we got to secure that border. And that was always the uh, where the where the negotiations seemed to break down and not get to that bipartisan agreement. And perhaps perception is just as good as reality if 
and we'll talk about re- retired General John Kelly, whose whose focus seems to be on border enforcement as a as a general who used to lead the uh, Southern Command um, in in South America. That maybe this perception of oh, we have somebody who will emphasize. Uh, cracking down and focusing on the border first. So now we can talk about all these things and all these other things may be on the table. It's speculation, but it's a possibility just when you look at that pe- that history that you were mentioning. And Sheila. talking about enforcement, I know we keep sort of continuing this, talking about enforcement, guess who's picking up the tab for almost all of immigration-related changes and issues? It's almost exclusively and entirely the business immigration community with your massive payments of super-duper increases in H-1B filing fees and potential of in introducing possibly new perm fees, constant increases in the I-140, 485. You keep talking about somebody picking up the tab, the increase in the premium processing fees. Basically, the business immigration community is picking up the tab for border enforcement, for kicking out people, for family, for almost everything. Yes, family-based immigrants are paying their own tab fees and NATS, NATS applications, naturalization applicants are paying fees. But at the end of the day, a major portion of the fees for the whether it's the Department of Labor training fee, the acquia fee, the penalty fee, the premium processing fees, most of that is being paid by each of us or you all as employers that are doing these sponsorships. And it would be nice if for all that money that we were given some nice reward instead of being squeezed harder and harder. Now, talking about the president elect's hand or the president, yeah, the president elect's hands being tied by Congress or in the form of not being able to change laws, we know for sure that the that the president, when the person becomes the president on January 20th, President Trump, that in fact he has a substantial impact in modifying, changing, implementing regulations. Can you briefly, Joel, uh, describe what that process looks like? Sure. Thank you, Sheila. And and speaking of fee increases, that was done by regulation. There was no law passed. That was something that done through regulations based on existing laws. Um, and that's really what a lot of immigration is, is that we have the Immigration and Nationality Act, which kind of lays out the fundamental principles of immigration law. But then you have the government agencies then interpreting that law and creating regulations. And so when you are you know, making decisions or when you are trying to determine whether you can or can't do something in immigration, a lot of times you're really looking at the regulations as opposed to the law because the regulations are, are kind of more in practice with what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Uh, one good example of that is uh, H-1B, the number of H-1Bs issued every year, that's set by statute. That's not going to be changed by the president or by any president without Congress and your, uh, 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 without Congress coming in and passing a new law and having the president sign it into law. Um, on the other hand, um, the ability of, let's say, an H-1B worker to extend status and they file that extension and they get that 240 days with uh, work authorization with the same employer, that's a regulation that was passed based on the existing statutes. So. Um, for those types of regulations to pass, there is a formal process that has to go through that can take months, that can take sometimes years to go through. Uh, usually the, the public is given an opportunity to comment on a proposed regulation. So once that regulation is finalized and goes into effect, the president can't just, you know, with the, the you know, flick of a pen, get rid of that regulation. In order to get rid of a regulation or substantially modify a regulation, you're going to have to go through the entire regulatory process again. So for those regulations that are in effect, they're at least safe in the short term. Long term, if the president wanted to change them, yes, they very much could. 
Um, you're going to have notice. You're, it's not going to happen overnight. But uh, and to, and we do know that uh, President-elect Trump has said that he wants to stop regulations. He wants to get rid of a lot of regulations, but very little in the way of specifics. And I don't certainly have not heard any discussions regarding specific immigration regulations that his administration wants to get rid of. Okay, thank you, Joel. And just to go back one step, if I can, for many countries and many people, the word laws and regulations are used interchangeably. And I think it's very, very easy, especially if people are from other countries, not to appreciate the difference. The law is the law, which is the black letter law. It's the law that's passed by Congress. A regulation is actually the interpretation of the law as determined by the particular federal or state agency, in this case, federal government, because it's immigration, which is subject to the doctrine of preemption, where states aren't allowed to get involved with issues dealing with U.S. immigration law where the particular federal agency, in this case, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, is able to interpret either the law itself to the extent that there are gray areas, because if it's black and white, then there, there is nothing for the agency to interpret or add in a regulation. Or if there are gaping black holes or holes that need to be filled in, like the example that Joel just gave about the 240-day extension because the, the, the USCIS was taking several months to process a case and we didn't want to have the employee pack up and leave the country. The employer suffers, the employee suffers, the family suffers. So they said, okay, we'll just give you this blanket sort of, sort of quasi, not a grace period, but time while the petition is pending to keep staying, to stay here and work. Now, that did not connect up with maybe the Department of Motor Vehicles, DMV, and they give them a hard time. So there's a whole bunch of gray areas. And so the real issue, as we're going to go through, is talking about what happens to the regulations that are already in effect. So you heard a little bit from Joel in the overview, but as he, as Joel just explained, regulations tend to stay that way. I don't want to use the word permanent, but they're more or less fixed for a long duration of time. And in order to either change them or eliminate a regulation that's already in place, most likely a new regulation would be needed to replace that, uh, which means that it would need to go through the entire regulatory process, which can take months or years. Or there are so many other areas like we've seen with AC21 and other laws that impact U.S. businesses where 15 years after the law passed in October of 2000, we still don't have any regulations well, on actually, AC21. You, that, that's interesting that you mentioned that, Sheila, because as you, you're right. Laws are written by Congress, and Congress, despite their infinite wisdom, uh, can't come up with all the scenarios. And so the regulations are practical solutions that as long as they're not completely off base from what the law says, you know, that interpretation is going to be deferred to the to the agency. But that's really interesting what you're saying right now about um, the, the passage of regulations is a function solely of the agency's willingness to pass regulations. You mentioned the AC21 regulation, and AC21 is this law that we've had since the year 2000, and we are now getting some regulation that's going to go into effect January 17th on, uh, on highly skilled workers and the use of AC21 and uh, a couple of other things, uh, grace period for H-1B workers. 
So it's interesting during this transitional period that we're in between, uh, you know, this exchange of power that we're seeing a lot of regulations. And I bet immigration is not the only area of federal government where this is, is happening. I'm sure in environmental and other areas where the current administration is pushing through this notice and comment and rulemaking procedure to make sure all of the I's are dotted and T's are crossed before the new administration comes into power on January 20th. Um, so I, I think the importance of regulations is illustrated by this push that we're seeing from you know the, the old guard to, to the new guard. And you're absolutely right. The it is you know once that toothpaste is squeezed out of the tube, it's not very easy to put it back in. The only way you could do it is to implement new regulations, go through the whole notice and comment period. And I'm sure just as the Obama administration was fought on some of these. Um, Pro, some of these executive orders, which I'm sure we'll talk about, and, and other things that this administration might see some resistance if some of those regulations come off as um, uh, not aligned with, with the agenda of our stakeholders. And another thing I thought was really interesting about the Trump uh, administration's uh, incoming agenda is uh, one of the top things on the Trump campaign's website is that for every regulation that is implemented, two regulations must be <laughs> removed. So whether he actually follows through with that kind of rhetoric, I mean, I get the point, but whether he actually follows through with because something he feels as there's so much excessive this is how you make them right. This is how you make fewer regulations. Fewer. But any, any new change, you got to get rid of two. And that's how we're going to have the regulations be half well, as Well, that would paperwork. be great. What do you think is going to happen with the H4? Because a lot of H4 EAD rule, because a lot of companies or employers have now H4s who are taking advantage of the H4 EAD issue. What's the rule? What do you think is going to happen with that, Kevin? So, yeah, I think this is an, one of those good examples where this is a regulation that is currently in place that went through notice and comment rulemaking and is an established current rule. And it would be the, the incoming administration could not just eliminate this rule. They would have to implement a new regulation to supersede it that does not allow for work authorization for uh, the, uh, certain H-4 applicants as the current rule does. Now, Getting back to you know whether and whether the new administration would would do that, I think it's important to look at economic indicators. Um, the campaigning Trump said that he wanted to deport 11, 12 million undocumented people. President-elect Trump has removed that that call from his his website, and I think a lot of it has to do with the tens of billions of dollars in taxpayer money it would cost to implement such a time-consuming um, and and really draconian program. And so hopefully there will be some similar thought process with the H-4 EAD, which creates uh, tax revenue because people are working and contributing to the economy. And it's giving um, independence and, and, and uh, to, to those people who, who, can, who would have otherwise not been able to work uh, in their current situation. So I'm hoping between the, uh, there are a lot of voices coming out of the administration. And some of them sound scary. Some of them sound sometimes reasonable. And, and so we don't really know what to make of it. I think that if we as, as stakeholders um, commit to holding our, our new government accountable and, and reminding them about the things that they seem to be agreeable to and amenable to, which are uh, economic activity and, and generating income and business and all that making America great again stuff. So Okay. So I know I'm always mindful of time, and I know we like to wrap these up in 45 minutes, and it's close to 20 minutes. So let's continue on a very uh, tight sort of schedule. The bottom line is, if there are some pending regulations that are out there that are in this gray area, hazy zone, and we were thinking of the Department of Labor, which has sort of put a halt on everything at this point, 
point with the perm regulations. I don't think anything's going to go anywhere this time because they're waiting for Trump to make America great again and get back onto that agenda. But uh, let's go to the issue of Trump on H on the H-1B program. You know, Trump has been talking about um, first he said, go, you know, why the heck are people taking away our jobs? Then a little while later, clearly mentioned in another interview that it's very important. They're high skilled workers, that there is a much great need in America for the H-1B program, then again came back and said, but many of these people on H-1B are in fact not high skilled or in short supply. So there's, as everybody would agree, there's been a lot of back and forth on this issue. But the key uh, sort of motivating factor for Donald Trump has been how U.S. workers must and will be protected. And therefore, some form of labor market check is required to be introduced into the H-1B program. Uh, so, Joel, do you want to you do Joel? You and and Kevin, I guess, want to talk a little bit about the H one. Sure. Uh, yeah. There, there. What we've heard so far out of the campaign, uh, while he was campaigning, and then after he was elected, um, has been cr- frankly a lot of times contradictory. Um, we're we're not clear where this is going. Uh, he did meet in December with a number of senior executives or, uh, of some major major. Uh, uh, tech companies like Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. And the tone that came out of that, and these were many people that had been adamantly against Trump when he was running, the tone actually came out that it was conciliatory, that apparently he was trying to build bridges there. So potentially that he's going to come out and, and maybe do some positive things with H-1B, or it could be that he was trying, you know, he was playing to his audience. And then the reason, you know, he's, He's trying to claim that the H-1B workers are stealing American workers' jobs. He's going to say that to one audience and then to another audience say something different. So what's going to actually happen, uh, you know, once his administration gets underway, it's very difficult to tell um, I know. It almost sounds like we're all three of us here. Uh, on the panel, almost speaking like we're on The View in television, where after hearing it for one hour, you're like, now what exactly is going to happen? And the truth is, like we've said from the beginning, uh, we can't tell you about comments, for example, that Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella uh, pointed out the need to keep and increase the H-1B numbers and the H-1B program. And apparently Trump seemed to take, a, as, as Joel just pointed out, a conciliatory approach. You know, Let's she- fix that sort of mentality. Um, well, Sheila, I, I think um, you know you're absolutely right. It seems you know it's it's very speculative. I think a big factor here is what happens to the rest of the economy. The people that uh, were most motivated to elect Trump are people who are losing their jobs. They believe they're losing their jobs to outsourcing and immigration. There, a lot of them are losing their jobs to automation. But it really remains to be seen what does the Trump administration do about that aspect of the problems of the country. If that can, if there is an increase in economic activity through other, some other source other than immigration, or if immigration contributes to increasing employment, because we do know that tech workers do increase the employment opportunity for other U.S. workers here in the United States, particularly those uh, titans that were at this meeting like Apple and Microsoft and Facebook. So it it is possible that as long as the rest of the economy is going well, then the regulations and restrictions surrounding immigration will be uh, commensurately laxed. And yes, exactly, exactly. And I think the point that, that I know Kevin has raised before is that since the government is composed mostly of both business and military leaders, 
it's very possible that Trump could be amenable to some sort of an increase in the H-1B program or at least not trying to throw out the baby with the bathwater if he's convinced that it will be beneficial for the economy and help to make America great again. So we've talked to you about the statute, his limitations, his his restrictions on his power by Congress or the legislature, the regulations where he certainly has not he directly maybe, but obviously through him or his uh, designees, substantial impact on regulations. Next, we need to go to executive orders because executive orders is really where the president has a lot more clout. Um, And certainly the immigration policies that are most at risk are those that were enacted by President by former President Obama, I guess, or President Obama in his last few weeks. um, that, that are remaining via, via executive orders. Such executive orders are a way to make rules outside of Congress and outside of the, the, re, the rulemaking or regulations process. And we keep hearing, and I know I've received phone calls and emails from families and people and individuals and employers, universities and other employers saying, we have DACA-issued EAD cards or we have Dreamer-issued EAD cards what happens to those? Are they going to remain valid? Is Trump going to throw them out? Should we be firing these? Should we be taking these students out of our university? You know, what happens? What is what is your thought on that, Kevin? Uh, yeah, so I think the, the the DACA people who are who with work authorization through the DACA program have, I think, a reasonable basis for concern because since DACA is an executive order program, Obama implemented it with the stroke of a pen. Uh, Trump could rescind it with the stroke of a pen. So uh, that is something that procedurally is concerning because the option for elimination, quick elimination is just there. It exists. Um, after the election, though, Mr. Trump has softened his tone when talking about uh, this particular population of individuals. As I mentioned before, the calls for deporta- deporting 11 million people have been removed and focusing on just violent criminal offenders. However many there are here is a is a debatable question, but that is more aligned with the Obama prioritization for the undocumented community. And uh, President-elect Trump has been recently softening his tone about uh, these these individuals who came here as children and, and we have to do something for these people to make it work out and they're tremendous, incredible people and that kind of rhetoric. So again, not a lot of specifics, but a change in tone. And these kind of subtle cues mean life-changing, uh, they're life-changing consequences, not just to our employer listeners, but also to those individuals and, and, and the outcome for the rest of their life. Um, there, there was an attempt by the Obama administration to expand the DACA program to allow more individuals to be covered and also to create a, a DAPA program, which is deferred action for the parents of those uh, of those individuals. But those were blocked by by the courts, I believe in Texas specifically, and uh, because they didn't engage in, in, uh, in, in the proper notice and comment rulemaking kind of process. And so the expansion of DACA, and, and, and the creation of DAPA for the parents is probably not something that would go into effect under the Trump administration. 
but this current version of DACA, because it's a status quo item, and you know, once you give something to, once you give an entitlement to somebody, um, it, and you're it talking sort of feels like a right. Three hundred to four hundred thousand people. Yeah, that's children, right. That's right. That well, they're they're adults. adults now. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, imagine you know, you you're something happens to you when you're one, two, three, four years old, and you're making these plans, making this assumption that you're a U.S. citizen, and and then you just find out one day that you're not, and your plans for going to college and law school or or business school or whatever are are or engineering school like most of our clients. <laughs> excuse me. I have a bias, right? So, but but that that's hindered because of this thing where one president giveth and the other other make come and taketh away. So so it's a very stressful situation, I think, for those people in that situation. My hope is that, again, looking at economic indicators, that um, it, it wouldn't be worth it. Just like deporting 11 million people is not worth it. Just like eliminating H4EAD is not worth it. Um, but I think that's going to require stakeholders constantly, constantly, constantly holding our government accountable and, 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 and being in his ear and his designee's ears about these issues. Absolutely. And I think we can take for granted at this time that unless something dramatically changes, that the other part of the regulation, along with DACA, called the uh, DAPA, or the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents, which has been blocked by courts, several courts working together, that it will likely never go into effect under a Trump administration. I think we can all say that with fair degree of certainty, barring some something miraculous or freaky, crazy happening in the world. The next topic that I know we've been asked about and that may or may not impact you directly as employers, though it probably will, especially if you have H1 and green card holders who could be in that category if they travel abroad and they're of a particular religion. And I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. So one of the most controversial promises that while he was campaigning as for pre the president position that Donald Trump kept making over and over again was to implement a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. That's a direct quote. Right? <laughs> that is a direct quote from him. So he said that, and then he appeared to kind of a little bit back off, and especially when he invited, I guess, the mayor of London to say, oh, well, you're an exception. We'll invite you in. And the mayor said, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not interested in coming to your country under that sort of a regime. But even after the election, when apparently on his website, the, that uh, release, the press release proposing a ban on all Muslims entering the U.S. was deleted and he was asked about it promptly. It was again reinserted back onto the website. So and then again, I think as of yesterday or uh, just a few days ago, he just said even more recently, I guess he's been saying things like, um, you know, um, maybe we I've never changed my position and I'm 100 percent correct about why I feel what I do, especially with global terrorism occurring in many other parts of Europe and elsewhere in the world. So with that, Joel, what do you think is going to happen with this whole issue? So I, I think on the one hand, there's a, there are interesting legal questions. I think legal scholars have gone back and forth on this about whether it could be done. If you wanted to ban all Muslims, could you theoretically do it? And there is case law, there is Supreme Court precedent that indicates that, yes, this could be done. Um, the, the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, uh, actually gives the president power to, uh, to, to 
prevent the entry of, of any foreign nationals or a class of aliens into the United States whose presence would be detrimental to the interest of the U.S. And that's very vague language. And what we've seen from at least from at least old case law from dating back as as early as uh, around World War II era, that this would be permitted. Now, whether a modern court would uphold that is another story. But the current precedent and the current laws in the books would probably allow this. Um, but are you again, referring to the Japanese internment camps? Th- that's part mm-hmm. of it, yes. There, and there's some mm-hmm. other, there are, are some other cases as well that kind of indicate that this would be permitted at least, you know, again, decades ago, but it's still technically good case law. But that all being said, uh, there's been a lot of walk back on this. And now it seems to be, well, it's not going to be all Muslims. It's only going to be people from certain countries. Of course, they're going to be countries that are predominantly Muslim. Um, and it's going to be, you know, is it going to be a registry? Is it going to be a ban? Is it going to be extra uh, security taken up front? I, and it, it certainly seemed from the campaign that, you know, perhaps the, the campaign was not aware of how much um, security is already done up front, how much background checks are already done. Um, so what is going to happen? We don't know. I, I think it's very clear. If you're a U.S. citizen, you're almost certainly not going to be impacted. If you're not a U.S. citizen, if you're a green card holder, uh, potentially, as far as if there was a registration, but I think that's less likely. Um, for non-immigrants, though, um, if you're in the U.S., it does not seem to be an issue. But if you're going to be traveling outside of the U.S. and this goes into effect, that could be a problem. Because even if you have a valid visa, they could say, well, you're from you know, country Saudi Arabia, let's say. And they determine that people from Saudi Arabia can't come without... Uh, at least temporarily, or without extra screening, or something. We don't know. Um, this is kind of speculation yeah. at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to just talk to, to about clarify NCRs? that when Joel mentioned Saudi Arabia, he was he was mentioning it as a possible. Yes, uh, yes. just to clarify, there this is, is no <laughs> n- country that has been specifically named. Though I think the waffling back and forth was not just every Muslim from every part of the world, but likely from countries which have terrorism. But then even within so-called comparatively peaceful countries, they have been isolated terrorist acts that could then be used. So it's such a broad and vague definition. Kevin? Right. Yeah, I know we're speculating a little bit here, but I think the main country of concern in, in, in current times is Syria. I mean, that, that's that's the main... that Immigration... We're talking about a sliver of immigration here, but immigration is impacting the entire world and the changes that we're seeing in the leadership of all of the uh, developed world countries in a lot of ways is the result of immigration, whether you're talking about Brexit in the United K, whether you're talking about the recent attack in Turkey or the, uh, the uh, against the Russian ambassador there, or you're talking about the German attack and, and allegedly ISIS being involved there. We're speculating, but I think one aspect of the speculation is how many more of these kind of high-level media, media high-level attacks are we going to see? And if they're increasingly on American soil, then these questions of, well, is it constitutional and then even possible for these kind of programs to be implemented? And as Joel mentioned, there probably is some constitutional basis to do it. Um, every, in the aftermath of 9-11, President George W. Bush implemented a program called the National Security Exit Entry Registration System, or NSEERS. Interestingly, the current administration recently uh, issued a final regulation completely removing any uh, reference to NSEERS in in the rules. Obama uh, suspended the program in 2011, but that didn't remove the law from the books until recently, until just this month, in uh, December actually, when the Department of Homeland Security determined that this program of tracking 
people from certain countries determined to be a, a threat, international terrorist threat, and, and effectively in practice this was a Muslim tracking system. It was determined to be redundant, capturing data manually that was already captured through automated systems and no longer provided an increase in security in light of the Department of Homeland Security's evolving assessment of the threat posed to the United States. I think part of what this is saying, however, um, is that in 2016, we have way more efficient tracking mechanisms to track not just Muslims or but anybody in the United States or outside of the United States. I think that's something that we've been we've been aware of for uh, for a few years now. So part of this might just be that we have programs that are way more efficient than NCRs to track, and so we can uh, we can tell the public what they want to hear to help them feel safe about a certain population that they're not familiar with. But in practice, and, you, and I think this is rhetoric you hear from the Trump administration too. I'm not going to tell you all my secrets. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do. We're just going to do things. So per, again, when we talk about percep, uh, speculation and what we perceive, this is a theme that I think is is very characteristic of the entire Trump administration and something we'll probably be talking about for at least the next four years. Yeah. And I guess the real question that people sort of are asking over and over again, whether this pledge by uh, Trump, whether he's doing it to get people revved up and excited or whether he was very serious about what it means, um, whether you know, the pledge that we're going to ban all Muslims will actually in some sense happen or not happen. Uh, Because as Joel pointed out, you know what, the president does have very broad and sweeping authority. On the other hand, as Kevin and we've sort of discussed a little bit, it's possible that the courts may refuse to hear such cases um, based either on technical reasons or determine that the ban is either permissible, like Joel explained, or impermissible under the Constitution, Uh, though in general, even when we talk about the great American Constitution, which sort of provides rights and and, uh, liberties for many, there are severe, severe restrictions for people who are either non-U.S. citizens slash foreign nationals, or particularly if you're both a foreign national and you happen to be outside of the United States, then you lack many of the constitutional protections. So, Or I think, if you're a U.S. citizen speaking to an, a non-U.S. citizen on the phone or, right, because that's also something where that communication is data that can be that can captured be tracked to or and tracked. captured in, in a different way than if two U.S. citizens were speaking. Right. So, I mean, in the example where Joel was giving and U.S. employers, I was just trying to think is what might impact you is if your employees, let's say you got a huge team and a percentage of them are, in fact, uh, Muslims and they go home for vacation for uh, either Ramadan or whatever, the Christmas, New Year holiday during that time, during the, 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 the holidays, and then they find that they're stuck outside because there's some ban of some sort imposed, they would probably not have a whole lot of protection if there is some kind of an executive order. But if they're in the U.S., working in the U.S., I don't know that they can be easily deported or removed because the person has valid H-1B status. The risk is if they decide to go outside for work or fun or family get-togethers and then are unable to return. And again, it's a scary, scary thought. Hopefully it's not going to come to pass, but people have to be prepared. And if you have a large percentage of your company for a particular reason 
with people of a particular from a particular country or a country which is known for terrorism or of people of uh, the Muslim faith, then you need to be aware of some of these risks that might happen to you. Um, I think we oh, have like a few minutes, maybe the last three, four minutes to another, talk a little bit. Sh- uh, sure. And, and another interesting point about what you just mentioned just now about like the ability to get a visa and come back in. Visa issuance is very and always has been highly discretionary. And what you're saying kind of reminds me of this zero tolerance policy post 9-11 that the visa officers mm-hmm. briefly had, right, where it was virtually impossible after 9-11 from certain countries to uh, to get the visa. So that, that kind of... Um, uh, that 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 philosophy is something that could be implemented almost immediately without any kind of change in law or policy. Okay, so I know as I said we always try to be mindful of the 45-minute rule, and I'm pretty sure we're going to make that this time. But we thought it would be very important to share with you a little bit about uh, the retired general John F. Kelly because he's going to be the head. Uh, of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, if confirmed. Which is confirmed and right. Oh, that's right. If, if confirmed, if confirmed. But at least it's the nominee that Donald Trump has put forth to serve as the new DHS head. And uh, let's understand a little bit about his background because that may provide some insight. And I think we talked about it a little bit briefly when Kevin Setz talked about his sort of South American back, you know, background to give us a focus of which way there the DHS might try, try to focus its time and money. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this is really important because Trump seems to be a delegator in chief and he wants to put the, the, the all the right people in all the right places. So if retired General John Kelly is going to be the person who's going to be running Depo- Department of Homeland Security, it's worth understanding a little bit about his background. He, he was the former commander of the uh, entire U.S. Southern Command when he was in the military and that uh, under Obama. And that covers 31 countries in, in South America. Th- this experience, I think, is what creates this perception and also some of the work that he did while in that role, this perception that he's a border hawk and that his his view is that border security is a is a priority. And as I was mentioning before, that might do something about the perception about how what, what the current government, how seriously the current government takes border protection, which I think is pretty serious. Um, but as for beyond military experience, I'm not really sure. Joel, what do you think about? I, I think mm. it's it's a bit of a, a mystery. We we uh, he clearly was picked because of his background and his interest in border security. Um, he was not picked because he has some strong public views about business immigration. So it's almost anybody's guess what what role that he's going to take in that. Um, it, it could basically be one of the areas where maybe he just doesn't care about and he's just assuming whoever's running the USCIS and, and uh, the other related agencies are going, going to be dealing with that issue. Um, so, so the bottom line is uh, we, we don't, don't know, know we don't on know. business, but certainly we expect on the border. So to try to conclude, I don't know how many of you as employers and businesses are seeing this with your employees already. I know we've all been guessing, hearing about the 221Gs being issued at the U.S. consulates with the blue papers saying your cases on administrative processing will take forever. Now, when even after going through that hellhole and waiting forever, when the person tries to enter the United States at the different ports of entry, the POEs, whether it's the airport, the land port, the seaport, but primarily airports. We are hearing horror stories at the Murti Law Firm where we are hearing from the CBP or the Customs and Border Inspectors um, saying, making comments like, ha ha, there's a new sheriff in town. Are you really scared um, that your H-1B job may not be around anymore or that our new president is going to make sure 
that the H-1B program is dramatically crippled and all of you people are going to suffer. Now, I believe that nobody has trained anybody at this point, but it is certainly empowering certain factions that are already have an inclination to have distrust or dislike people from other parts of the world and look at them, especially for people who... Uh, the blue-collar workers who've been sort of always been threatened by the new wave of immigrants. This time, it's unusual that H-1Bs are now being targeted because the first time in the history of uh, the United States, as many of you may know, H-1B workers are actually making more on average than an average American worker, which, of course, doesn't bode well and sort of ties into the whole thing about make America great again. Let's make sure that the foreign nationals are not taking away your jobs and that you're not having to train the foreign people to take away the jobs from Americans, etc. Um, at the end of the day, there is a huge black unknown that we're all dealing with. We don't know whether the rhetoric, whether the talk is the person or whether the person is just the savvy, clever business person that said what he needed to say to get elected, which is what he recently again said, that if it was not an electoral college process, but in fact a popular vote college, then I would have completely campaigned in a different way and made sure I won that as well. Um, And so whether that is true, that he is uh, just did what he needed to to get elected and now he's going to play a completely different set of cards because he's actually in office, time will tell. But we in this discussion today have tried to outline his comments, what he has publicly indicated, our analysis of it at the Multi Law Firm based on three of us really sort of trying to piecemeal and understand the issues with a focus on U.S. immigration law. With that, I really do believe and hope that it's not going to be doom and gloom, as many people are uh, concerned about. But within the next six months to a year, before the end of 2017, hopefully, hopefully we will have a slightly better handle on which way the winds blow with respect to U.S. immigration law and policy. With that said, I really hope we haven't uh, shared any doom and gloom with all of you because I am an eternal optimist and I truly believe that um, a lot of it may have been hot air and when push comes to shove, he does believe in business. He does believe in uh, global economy. His own businesses, he has used the global economy and traded you know, ex- in other parts of the world and used workers in other parts of the world. Uh, so I'm hoping and expecting that we will have something much more concrete. Uh, and with that said, I, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Kevin Andrews, Joel Yanovich, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family. We want to take this opportunity to wish you, your business family, and your home family, and all your loved ones the very, very best wishes for the new year. Thank you so much for joining us today. Have a great year.